welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today, I'm really excited because I am hosting three phenomenal oncologists, policy researchers, and patient-centered clinicians, Drs. Ian Tannock, Mark Retain, and Daniel Goldstein. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was reading in the Journal of Clinical Oncology and a paper appeared in the section of comments and controversies titled Near Equivalence. These three co-authors, along with other co-authors, were proposing a very different mechanism of how clinical trials should be conducted in a way that might reduce healthcare costs and allow better access for patients to novel drugs, especially in low middle income countries. I thought the paper was provocative. I thought it was very interesting. But who is best to discuss this paper than some of the authors, especially these three? It's really interesting because near equivalence really argues certain things that somewhat maybe against, I don't want to say really against, I will say it's not aligned always with the academic orthodoxy, you know, where you absolutely always to have prospective randomized control trial to determine uh, superiority or non-inferiority. Look, let's get an example. You've got drug A and drug B or the same drug, let's say drug A at uh, two different doses, are you able to reduce the dose of that drug when you give it to patients without doing a prospective randomized trial of the two different doses to demonstrate that they are equally effective? Things like that. I think there's a lot of opportunities in oncology to refine the way we conduct clinical trials so that the outcomes of the clinical trials are more applicable to larger patient populations, but more importantly, so that the drugs and the effective drugs that come to market become more affordable to larger patient populations. And for that, I've invited Dr. Mark Retain, Dr. Ian Tannock, and Dr. Dan Goldstein to join me on today's podcast to describe the paper. What is this near equivalence concept? What are we talking about, really? And what do we need to do moving forward? I couldn't be happier that they were generous and accepted my invite. And we taped this episode on April 13, 2021. So you are listening to it a couple of weeks later. Nothing has changed much in the world of healthcare policy. But I hope you will enjoy this episode as much as I enjoy taping it. Before I run the episode, I would like to ask you to find this podcast on all podcast outlets. You can find me on Apple Podcast, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, pretty much anywhere you consume your podcasts. Please subscribe to the show, rate the show, write a brief review, and refer a friend or a colleague to the show. Let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter, at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, or sending me an email to shadinabhan at outlook.com. Without further ado, near equivalence with three stars, 
exclusively on Healthcare Unfiltered. Okay, folks, well, this is really exciting for me and hopefully for you as well, because I have three of my heroes today. Uh, I'm a little bit nervous because I'm starstruck with the brain power on this Zoom call that we are taping. We'll start with Dr. Tannick, a little bit of introduction. I believe every listener of mine knows who you are, but maybe a little bit about you. I doubt that, but uh, <laughs> so I am a, I suppose I would describe myself as a semi-retired medical oncologist. Uh, I've spent pretty much my entire career, except for a sabbatical year in France, at the Princess Margaret Hospital, now Princess Margaret Cancer Center. So I was there for 35 plus years. And my interests were in GU and breast cancer clinically, but I've had a strong interest in the way that clinical trials uh, are performed. Uh, and have been quite critical of some that uh, have perhaps not delivered the, the message that I think that they should have. And since retirement, I've become more interested in global access to optimal cancer treatment and have become involved with the organization that all three of us are involved in currently called Value in Clinical Cancer Care, or VI3C. Mark? Thanks, Chatty, for... In inviting us to do this. So, uh, so I've known Chatty a while. Uh, I've been at the University of Chicago uh, my entire career uh, and been on the faculty for, for 35 years. I'm a medical oncologist and clinical pharmacologist. Uh, most of my career has been spent on drug development and to some extent, uh, diagnostic development in the pharmacogenomic space. But in recent years, I've been very concerned about labeling of oncology drugs and pricing of oncology drugs, and therefore have been uh, largely motivated recently to try and develop alternative strategies off-label treatment regimens that will, that will use lower doses or less frequent dosing, and thereby reducing both medical toxicities and financial toxicity. Dan. Uh, so uh, thank you for inviting me here. I am only a young child here in the company of these illustrious giants you mentioned. Um, I'm, I'm a medical oncologist, originally from the UK, spent nine years in the US and have been in Israel for the past five years, uh, GU oncologist by trade and a researcher in pharmacoeconomics and now also working as a policymaker for Klalit, the largest HMO in Israel, where we try to develop smart policies to make the most efficient use of treatments available for our 5 million insurees approximately. So thanks all. I, I've invited you because I was uh, fascinated by the paper that you wrote in the section of comments and controversies titled Near Equivalence. It, was, it came in the Journal of Clinical Oncology uh, several weeks back. There's a lot in this paper, uh, but uh, Mark, why don't we start with you? What is the problem? Just identify the problem that led to some of the theories that the three of you, along with other authors, describe in the paper. Let's just start what the problem is. Well, I, I think the ultimate problem is that we have drugs, many drugs, if not most drugs uh, in oncology, that are labeled at doses 
that are too high. And the question is, how do you do the studies? How do you design the studies? How do you implement the studies? How do you interpret studies that aim to demonstrate that a more appropriate dose is as effective as the labeled dose and treatment schedule? And that's what led to the discussion of how do we do this? Non-inferiority studies are clearly not the answer. And Ian came up with the concept of near equivalence and then developed the whole paradigm for the paper. But Ian, I mean, to, to, to echo what, what Mark was saying, how do we know that the drugs are being dosed too high? He started by saying, well, the, dose, the drugs are dosed too high. I could argue, well, you know, we did phase one trial, MTD, whatever it is, and the, the traditional clinical trial design. How, what, what are your thoughts there? Well, probably Mark can answer this better than I can because he's been more involved in that end of uh, drug development. But phase one trials where they tried to establish the right dose have been historically anchored in the chemotherapy era where more was more likely to uh, have anti-tumor effects, not always more likely to have true patient benefit because of course, higher the dose, higher the toxicity. But as we moved into more targeted agents that uh, have a specific target or a specific aim in terms of immunotherapy, you know, just looking at very small numbers of patients uh, and not asking the question, you know, it's at what dose does this particular drug effectively inhibit its target and for how long? That's the real question, rather than just pushing the dose uh, to give an excess of drug that may be adding only toxicity and using a lower dose is often just as effective as using a higher dose and with less toxicity and potentially less cost. And so that, that's an extremely important thing that many people, as Marcus said, are currently being overdosed. And when it comes to access, and particularly global access, a lot of these sort of, we've had some very effective new therapies, particularly in the realm of immunotherapy, but it's a hollow victory if these drugs are not available to a high proportion of the people worldwide who cannot benefit from them. And while that's true immensely in poorer countries, it's also true to some extent in high-income countries, such as the one that all of us live in. And um, so the idea of near equivalence is to ask, how can we get a more sensible uh, dosage and a less costly and hopefully less toxic dosage and show that? And that isn't easy, as, I, as I'm sure you appreciate. So then the idea of near equivalence, again, was, you know, holistically to, to how can you dose the same drug at a lower dose while maintaining similar efficacy. How can you do that without doing head-to-head -head clinical trials? Help us understand. I mean, somebody would say, well, you'll have to do a trial with the same drug at a lower dose versus the same drug at a higher dose, prospective, randomized, whatever it is. But you guys propose completely different approach. Take us through one of the first approaches you would suggest. Yeah, so, um, you know, 
I think we're not saying that we shouldn't do randomized trials. I think that what we're saying is that the level of evidence that we need in order to prove that that lower dosage is just as effective, we're saying that we shouldn't hold it to quite as high a statistical level um, of, of requirements for evidence. And essentially saying that we can use smaller trials with, with uh, different types of endpoints that might be sufficient. Let's take an example. Um, you know, and I think that really what you have to think about here is the net health benefit of the money that can be saved and how that money can be redistributed. And so if you look, for example, at the example, uh, the example of six months versus 12 months of Herceptin, there were two trials in France and in the UK, the Persephone and the FAR trial. And they, they did a massive non-inferiority study, 5,000 patients or something each, and still weren't even really able to conclude absolutely conclusively with all the tight statistical non-inferiority margins that six months was equivalent to 12 months. And it took them several years to run the studies, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look at the graphs, the lines are on top of each other, showing you know, basically the same efficacy. Um, and if you think that in a population, if I think about Israel, if we were to give everybody six months instead of 12 months Herceptin, and the money that we could save from that is millions and millions of whatever currency you're using, and that money can then be redistributed within the healthcare system to provide other services, whether it's in psychiatry or geriatrics or social workers or whatever else, but that money can be redistributed in a type of closed system. Or alternatively, the situation that you have in the States is that, you know, does a, a relatively poor person, maybe living in Chicago, who has high co-pays, high costs, does he really want that absolute 100% statistical certainty of the same in order to save himself that personal financial toxicity that he would incur from getting 12 months instead of six months of treatment. And so it's that level of evidence that we really need to be so demanding about the level of evidence that we need in order to, uh, for these non-inferiority trials. Mark, can you imagine people were saying, now you start comparing cross-trial comparison and, and you know people will get very... You know, some people will get immediately very upset at that because, you know, once you compare across trials and you say the curves look the same and so forth, we should speculate or extrapolate. Some folks will be um, immediately against that. I don't think we, 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 we would support cross-trial comparisons. Uh, I think the notion here is we would do randomized trials the only thing that differs from a non-inferiority trial is the statistical framework. And, uh, but the trial, basic trial design is the same. Now, non-inferiority trials were not designed for the purpose of what we're trying to do here. We, we're saying we think a lower dose is just as good, if not better. Maybe better because if you can avoid treatment interruption for side effects, it would be better. And so we think that the two are going to be the same. Non-inferiority trials were developed for the purpose of showing that a new product is better than nothing without having a, a no treatment or placebo control. In other words, it was developed for the purpose of bringing a new drug to market by showing that it was non-inferior to some other drug that was known to be effective. That's where we, the concept of non-inferiority trials came from, and therefore showing if it was non-inferior to something that was effective, therefore it was effective. 
It was never really intended for the purpose of showing that just giving less of something gets you equivalent results, which is what we're trying to do here. And we're saying it's the same drug. It's not a different drug. We understand the pharmacology. We may or may not anticipate a decrease in toxicity depending on the drug, but we don't expect it to look any different. And if it's a little better, a little worse, there's an equal chance of that. And But the, the goal is to show that it's near equivalent. So Ian, in the paper, you divide things into several paragraphs. You talk about the control arms. You talk about um, you talk about drugs with similar outcomes in one scenario may have similar effects in another. I was a little bit in, intrigued by this. Do you want to tell listeners what you mean, what what you meant by that in the concept of near equivalence? I will, Charlie. But I I just like before we go on to that to add a further comment about the sort of evidence that's used in the randomized trials that we envisage. The you know, randomized trials generally have a primary endpoint, ideally survival, but some outcome measure. And what tends to be ignored is the evidence from, say, pharmacodynamics, the evidence that the drug at a different dose or given in a different way, or even a different drug, maybe inhibiting the target just as well. And you don't need a huge trial if, for example, you've got an immunotherapy drug where you know that inhibits the target just as well at a lower dose for as long. And with abiraterone, with food, another example in prostate cancer, that giving it with food, that the pharmacodynamics and pretty much the pharmacokinetics are similar to a higher dose. So there's other information to be used. So before we move on to uh, your uh, question, but I think what you're bringing up, and I think this needs expansion and something we, I know Dan is interested in following up, is different classes of drugs often are doing the same thing. So let's take immunotherapy and PD-1 inhibitors. So we have two commonly used drugs, nivolumab and pembrolizumab, both extremely expensive. There's one more approved, there's about eight in development. And nevo and, Pe and pembro, in my way of thinking, are Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Each have been approved for different indications depending where the trial's been done. But I would bet a fair bit of cash that you could use replace one with the other. And just as in other classes of drugs, think of bisphosphonates, right? You can use oral alendronate, you can use alendronate and so on. And some have been developed for osteoporosis, some have been developed for you know, cancer and so on. You can probably use one or the other. It seems quite likely that if some enterprising company would develop a PD-1 inhibitor that was shown, say, in one or two trials to give equivalent outcomes, or near equivalent outcomes, and you knew the pharmacology and you knew the pharmacodynamics, and one company decided to uh, develop a drug that was considerably cheaper than the others, and that hasn't happened much in, in drug development, but that one would, could probably be replacing the drugs Pembro and Nevo that we're using now, or would force the companies that make those drugs to reduce that price. And I, I think that's a concept to look for the future. And if you think about it, if you go out to buy a new car or a new refrigerator, 
you know, you can go out and buy a, an Aston Martin or you can buy a Toyota. They'll both get you perfectly well from place to place with a huge difference in price. And different companies have developed uh, different models to fit different markets. But that hasn't happened in drug development. But I think it could. Uh, and that you could have a perfectly good drug that you could then disseminate and have great global access for people who would benefit with melanoma and lung cancer and so on in countries like India that we don't have now. So that's the concept of the potential to replace current drugs with some others. So, so then, just so I could understand this practically, um... So we have a lot of Me2 and Me3 drugs, right? I mean, you could pick many drugs. I mean, you PARP inhibitors, CDK4-6 inhibitors, and all of that stuff. But that concept, what you're suggesting is we could use the same PARP inhibitor in an indication that was not approved by the FDA because, uh, uh, because it has the same mechanism of the other PARP inhibitor that was approved for that indication as long as it's a cheaper price. So, um, yeah, so here we're moving into a slightly different thing. We're moving into talking about class effects. Um, and I've been doing some policy work uh, in the past few months about class effects. Slightly different to what we're talking about, near equivalence and dosages of drugs. So with regard to class effects, it's long been, it's long been happening that in the field of, of general medicine, statins, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, that um, the insurance companies will do a tender sometimes and then they'll put a preference as to one in order to push one drug to the front because it was getting for a lower price. Now, cancer's kind of been the holy grail. You can't touch cancer uh, and we don't do these kind of uh, preferences in cancer. But the question is, why not? Um, and so this is, this is different. So there's all different ways to look at class effects or there's different levels of evidence required uh, that give you confidence about class effects. And so um, PARP inhibitors is one area. I wouldn't, I don't, you know, there's small leaps and big leaps. Um, small leaps would be to say there's two PARP inhibitors, both done trials, both in the same disease, both curves look the same and both toxicities look the same. So let's give one rather than the other. A bigger leap, um, but the cost is different. A bigger leap is to say, Oh, but there's also another PARP inhibitor, which was tried in another disease altogether. So, uh, and let's introduce that into the picture. That's kind of the next step is probably fine to be honest, but that's like the next step is a bigger leap. Um, some classic examples uh, of this, you can look at things like uh, androgen receptor blockers in prostate cancer. We've got enzalutamide, darolutamide, pinkalutamide, wapalutamide, who knows what. Um, and basically the mechanisms are all the same. There's some possible difference of one drug possibly having lower uh, a CNS toxicity. Um, the data is not that strong for it. And I think those drugs are kind of classic opportunities to say, and that, you know, they've been doing this in other countries as well, even in cancer care. Um, you go to the companies and you say, what's your lowest price for these drugs? Whichever is the lowest price you give, whoever gives the lowest price, We'll, we'll, you, we'll push that as a number one in our, in our, in our treatment uh, kind of uh, formularies. Um, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable strategy. Mark, philosophically, do you buy into the argument that some people say that if you, if you have drugs that are going to be sold cheaply in an 
in a capitalism, in a capitalistic society, this will impede innovation and companies will say, well, I'm not going to develop a drug unless I can charge for it um, as much as I think what the market can bear. Is there really, I mean, do you think this is just a myth or do you really believe that it could affect innovation when you really control some of these prices and bring them down? Well, some things are truly innovative and others are not. So let's, let's talk about mTOR inhibitors, for example. So serolimus was, you know, developed decades ago as an immunosuppressant. It was patented. It was patented actually as an anti-cancer agent. It was never developed as an anti-cancer agent. But eventually, um, you know, Novartis said, well, gee, we could make an analog of serolimus. We'll modify the structure. They called it RAD001. It became known as Everolimus. It's a pretty simple chemical modification. Some might say it's an obvious chemical modification. And they got a patent. And they made billions of dollars off of that drug, yet it wasn't innovative. And so that's an example where, and you know, serolimus of course has never been commercially marketed as an anti-cancer agent. It's a highly effective anti-cancer agent. And if one could readily do a near equivalent study of serolimus versus everolimus, and one would expect success. Um, but that's in the, I mean, how about the BCR ables? I mean, you've got so many of the Gleevex and the other ones. I mean, the, the prices never went down. I guess to Ian's point, in drug development, we have not seen these Me2, Me3 drugs bring any prices down. And the arguments you always hear from manufacturers is, we've spent billions of dollars on R&D. We need to capture this in the market after we come to market. Well, but there's waste. And when you have 10 companies develop PD-1 inhibitors. We don't, society doesn't need those extra investments, those R&D expenses, unless it's gonna re result in, you know, uh, competition, okay? So if you're making cars, you can't, you, you have to, you have to deal with the competition. You can make a better car and you can sell it at a higher price, but if you make a Me Too car, you can't charge a higher price because nobody will buy it. And so uh, the problem in, in, in pharmaceuticals is there's not really a free market, at least in the United States. Uh, there may be in some countries that for which there's you know, more buying power, but it's a seller's market in the United States. Well said. Um, so Ian, now the other aspect that you, the three of you with the co-authors talk about, if an alternative therapy is evaluated in a second superiority trial and you go into when this could happen, when could this, when should this not happen? And you talk about control arms and standard of care. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, I have my own problems with some of the control arms that are, get selected for some of the clinical trials. But at the same time, you also you do mention that this may be difficult when the trial is global, that the control arm, that's what's really available in, in low middle income countries. Um, let's talk about this a little bit. I think it's a very sensitive subject to many researchers and um, this control arm issues. And it, it goes along the lines that there is a there's this conspiracy theory that the pharmaceutical industry chooses deliberately 
a lower than standard control arm so they can demonstrate superiority. But at the same time, these selections go through regulatory bodies and regulatory agencies and IRBs and other, other aspects. So help us reconcile this issue. Yeah, I mean, I think there are certainly trials with poor control arms. Uh, and despite the fact that they go through these regulatory authorities, that sometimes that is done and partly it's the company's fault. And to be honest, it's the fault of the academic physicians who are willing to accept that the control arm may not be ideal. I'll give you a recent example, which has been critiqued by colleagues, friends of mine, the profound trial in prostate cancer. So profound trial is a trial that was published not once, but twice in the New England Journal as they went from the primary endpoint to survival. And it looked at uh, prostate cancer patients with, who had deficiencies in DNA repair. And it compared a laparib, talking about PARC inhibitors, with um, a control that if they'd had abiraterone, one of the effective second, third line uh, anti-androgen <coughs> drugs, if they'd had um, abiraterone, they got enzalutamide. If they had enzalutamide, they got abiraterone. And that was their control arm. And it turns out we already know that if you had Abby and then go on to Enzo, the response rate is of the order of 10% or less. There's plenty of data for that. So, it, you know, it's a trivial response rate, usually short-lived, unlikely to have any effect on long-term outcomes. And so that was the control arm chosen. A lot of well-known academic uh, oncologists in GU cancer were co-authors and went along with the company. And when it came to why we know that chemotherapy, for example, docetaxel uh, improves survival in patients after they've had a hormonal therapy, why wasn't that used? Well, about 60% had had docetaxel and 40% haven't. And, the, and the, the answer was, well, they weren't suitable. Well, to be honest, if you're, up, if you're able to receive a laparid, you can well able to receive docetaxel. And then the second line agent, which has also been shown to improve survival, cabazitaxel, was only used in a very small fraction. I can't, can't remember the number. It was about 10 or 15%. So the control arm in this trial was clearly weighted to show the value of this expensive, sexy drug that you know, inhibits DNA repair, and that's very appealing. But the trial hasn't really shown that the laparib is better than what is standard treatment by cancer patients, regardless of DNA repair ability. So one sees that. One also sees good controls. I'm nothing, I have nothing against uh, controls that recognize variability in standards of care. A good example of that is the trial of pembrolizumab, a second line treatment after platinum therapy for bladder cancer. It was compared with chemotherapy. Well, the standard second line chemo for bladder cancer is not terribly effective, response rates of 20, 25%. And some people use paclitaxel, some use docetaxel, some use vinfluanine. And so, sure, allow a patient choice and stratify. So I think 
there are good and bad ways of, cha- uh, of choosing controls. Uh, and I think you have to judge each trial on its merits from that. When you compare trials, which is difficult, and I agree with Mark, and I think that's trickier, but I mean, if you look at the development again in prostate cancer, of how abiraterone was developed sequentially for late stage pre-chemotherapy, early stage, enzalutamide followed it uh, with uh, about a year or two later. And every trial gave quantitatively a very similar benefit from either drug. I think you'd be fairly confident saying that those two drugs, abiraterone and enzalutamide, do about the same thing, even though they actually work in slightly different ways. And so when I am faced with a a patient with prostate cancer who uses one or other other of those drugs, I ask myself, which is better tolerated and which is cheaper? Uh, And I think there are other instances where you can easily do that. I'm quite sure that abiraterone and enzalutamide are highly equivalent, not even near equivalent, but highly equivalent. This really opens, I don't want to say open a Pandora's box, but I do think it's worth discussing a little bit. And I'll take all of your opinions sequentially. I'll start with Dan, because uh, the profound trial is, is an example that Ian mentioned, and it's obviously been heavily criticized by many and, and others have uh, praised the trial. The, the thing that I, I hear the most, and I actually have seen that in real practice, and, and I think we can all attest that real-world practice may deviate than what happens at University of Chicago or large academic centers, just the way it is, that the control arm of Abby followed by Enza or Enza followed by Abby represented what actually was happening pragmatically in the world. I mean, when you when you talk to, despite the low response rate, but what was actually happening um, is that many oncologists or urologists will switch from one to another because it's easy, it's oral, and and the idea of designing this was this is really what's happening, so we're just being pragmatic. Um, and, and you could think about other examples where, you know, I mean, in my world of lymphoma, I mean, many there are some trials that compared experimental arm to rituximab monotherapy and rituximab monotherapy was criticized. Well, of course, nobody's going to use it, but actually when you look at claims and so forth, that's what's, what's being used. So I hear what you're saying, but then I can't consult with the, with the real world. Dan, what, what do you say about the design that, that has to accommodate what's happening in real life? I might take a slightly different view to Ian um, on some of these things. In that, I think that there was How some, dare you? Yeah, how dare I? I'm sorry. Uh, Ian, I'm, to get I'm sorry. I just to complete, you know. Okay, go ahead. Fine. But I, I think that there are sometimes trial designs that are clearly um, designed uh, with a clear straw man control arm um, and clearly kind of uh, deceptive and manipulative. A manipulation by the uh, the funder, um, and you know I think that you can see some examples of that uh, in uh, myeloma. Um, I think that lymphoma. There are some of these examples as well, where these clomambucil trials as well. Um, but I also think that sometimes we as kind of critical academics can sometimes be a little bit too quick to jump to the. Um, to jump to the kind of uh, more accusatory tone and say that it was all planned and this is all a conspiracy. 
sometimes I think it is a matter of taking in, taking some practical issues into account. And sometimes I think trials may be designed in a way that maybe it wasn't really done on purpose to be manipulative, but it was just a consideration. They're sitting around the table trying to figure out how a trial is designed. Um, and someone says, oh, this is actually what's happening in practice. And so that's what's, what gets built into the, to the trial. Now, obviously, Ian has a lot more experience than me uh, in sitting around these tables and seeing how the designs take place. I, I don't think that always what uh, it's always manipulated, but I definitely think that there definitely are some cases. So I'll just add to that as well. And one of the things that I found particularly interesting was that at GU ASCA, when it was still a physical meeting a couple of years ago, there was a panel from the FDA. And this panel was very interesting because um, this issue of uh, substandard control arms was brought up uh, and the guy from the FDA, I can't remember who it was, openly admitted and accepted the fact that there are straw man controls and openly pointed his finger at myeloma trials and said, yes, myeloma has been a problem in this way. Um, uh, but unfortunately, unfortunately the, the FDA doesn't have the mandate um, to uh, specifically demand certain control arms. But it is interesting that the FDA actually see, uh, does see it. Mark, two things. I really want your opinion here. Number one is we've been in cooperative groups in these committees where a trial is being designed and selecting the control arm is not always easy. There are many factors that get involved in this, including funding. I mean, there are scenarios where you sit in the Alliance Cooperative Group Committee and you're trying to design the next best study in indolent lymphoma and and some of the, one of the factors that get involved in that selection is how can we really fund that trial? And, uh, and I'm sure you've been in some of these uh, conversations as well. So that's number one. Number two, you sometimes select a control arm in 2021 today, and a trial reads in the end of, in the middle of 2022, do you hold the other trial? Do you stop it now because we have a new standard of care? I mean, things change so rapidly sometimes, and you have to redesign everything and stop the study and, and, and help us with those two things. Well, I, I think for what we're trying to do, none of that matters. We're, uh, unless you say a drug is no longer going to be used, and therefore studying that drug is irrelevant, um, I think, you know, we're basically saying pick, your, pick the drug add any drug to this drug that we're interested in you want and we still think it's being done at the wrong dose or the wrong schedule and so whether let's take checkpoint inhibitors i think you know one could reasonably say that if you're prescribing pembrolizumab that you know the dose is too high it doesn't matter what the disease is it doesn't matter what the other drugs are we think the dose is too high. And then everything else is just operations and making sure you have some balance across your arms so that the data are interpretable. But it really doesn't matter. So unless you tell me, well, there's no sense studying pembrolizumab because nobody's going to be using it in 10 years, that's a whole different story. Um, but, but so we think that there's a, a, a big problem out there with drugs and we think that the best way to address them is by doing trials uh, that are dose ranging. The best solution would be if the dose were actually labeled appropriately to begin with. 
that's a regulatory problem that the FDA has been unwilling to enforce despite the Code of Federal Regulations discussing uh, the importance of dose ranging clinical trials. Oncology has been given a pass because cancer is such a devastating disease, but I can't recall any COVID trials that uh, use the maximally tolerated dose of anything because COVID is such a devastating disease. And so the rest of the world gets this. If the problem is in the way oncologists think and the way cancer patients think, where they think they're supposed to have side effects, and in fact, they might actually be disappointed if they didn't get side effects, the way some people are disappointed that they don't get a side effect when they get their COVID vaccine, that maybe it didn't work. Um, in, in practice, I think we, we, we just want good drugs that work. And ideally, we want to deliver drugs that don't have side effects. So Ian, how do how do we get to where you want to get? I mean, uh, you do you do mention in the paper, you know, uh, towards the end, some oncologists will not accept what they consider as imperfect evidence from near equivalence trial, pharmaceutical companies, regulatory agencies, and so forth. So clearly, you have a very high bar to to accomplish. How do we get there? What are the steps that I presume? this paper was selling the concept and, and hopefully it's resonating with people, but what are the steps that you could take over the next one to two years to make that a reality more than just a paper and theory? I think it's gonna be a series of gradual steps. I think it's increasingly bringing people to realize that uh, cost and toxicity are both barriers to widespread use of drugs and that global access is poor. I think the steps that we as an organization would like to take is to facilitate uh, the conduct of trials that ask questions about dose, alternative treatments, using uh, endpoints that is a combination of patient-related endpoints and pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic endpoints. I think it's most likely that we will be able to facilitate those trials outside of the United States. Um, certainly uh, countries like the UK and Canada are a bit more receptive and then have a growing ability to do trials with things like the Indian Trials Initiative that's been started by CS Promish and has great capacity. So I think we would like to stimulate those types of trials, trials that ask uh, about using lower uh, doses and less frequent administration of say checkpoint inhibitors and so on. Uh, I think we would try to compound that, uh, those trials with informing people about current strategies that can save money. I. I I have some strong collaborations in India, and we had a paper in, in the Journal of Global Oncology with Indian colleagues based on a survey of uh, Indian oncologists who either were or would be using, would be willing to use low-dose abiraterone with food. And that drug is already much cheaper in India, but using a quarter dose with food has a huge effect on its ability to be used in the 
indigent population in a low-income country. And we worked out that adopting that strategy would save the even the public Indian Health Service something of the order of 186 million US dollars a year. So I think it's a way at sort of it's not going to be a, a, a simple pathway, but I think increasingly encouraging people like ourselves to recognize the problem and to do these types of trials and then to try to get them recognized. For example, NCCN now does recognize low-dose abiraterone as an alternative, and that was something that we stimulated by making the appeal. And I think various strategies like that will be used. There will always be some people who will reject it. They will be supported largely by pharma, uh, and we just have to accept that. But I think that we can make some inroads and thereby improve access to good quality treatments on a global level. Mark, is that what the, um, do you want to tell us about the actual uh, organization that Ian was referring to, the the one that you're leading, the value in, in cancer care and so forth? I, I recall me and you having conversation about this almost six years ago, we were at Grand Rounds and you were telling me you were starting to work on this and I was fascinated by it. Maybe a couple of minutes on that, what it, what, how it started and, and what your, what's your vision for that? Well, we formed the Value in Cancer Care Consortium in 2016 and Alan Lichter has been our chair from day one. And we've really, you know, focused on the notion that we can get clinical trials done that will demonstrate that uh, lower doses uh, or less frequent dosing or some therapeutic substitutions can maintain the same benefit and reduce costs. And, and that's been our, our general approach as, as we're thinking further, we're thinking more about really reframing it as about reducing toxicities, both medical and financial toxicities. But uh, so that's, that's been the general strategy. And I, I think things will change at some point in the United States. I, I think that oncologists, particularly those in private practice are very aware of the money that they make when they select a particular drug or treatment regimen. And uh, I think that, that that is a factor in selecting a treatment regimen. Now, in a future world where we believe it will still be a factor, but the incentives are flipped, where the incentives are to give the best treatment, that, but the one that has the lowest cost of the alternatives rather than the highest profit of the alternatives. In that world, the strategies we're developing will be very important to the practicing clinician. If, for example, if they are financially incentivized to reduce costs, for example, in a capitated model, where if the drug costs exceed some threshold, where it actually comes out of their own pocket. And I don't think that world is that far away given what's going on with the cost of, of healthcare in general and specifically the cost of cancer care. So that's the world that we're strategizing for, not the world of 2021 or 2016. Can I ask you, so Mark, you say you think that, that world is not so far away. When do you think uh, the US is gonna have that world over uh, around the whole of the US? Well, the one thing I know about prognostication is 
it's that nobody is very good at predicting when. It usually takes longer than one thinks. But the other thing we're not very good at prognosticating is the magnitude of the effect. So I think it will be a game changer when it happens, but I, I, I think it would be a highly political because of the, it would really require probably an act of Congress to really make, get these kinds of changes through. And so it, these changes will have to overcome significant pharma opposition. But I think that the, that, the, that the corporate America, which funds most of healthcare, either directly or indirectly, is really going to have to rise up and be willing to take on pharma uh, if these changes are going to happen. Because at the end of the day, high healthcare costs are tax on every corporation in America. But I don't, I don't see, I mean, again, it's, it shouldn't be that we are taking on an entire industry. I think we, I don't think, I think we need to have a way to collaborate because frankly, I think pharma brings a lot to the table. Academics bring a lot to the table. Private practice bring a lot to the table. Policymakers, you know, I mean, you could make an argument that um, there are many drugs that have come to market that saved lives because of pharmaceutical companies investing money into this. Um, now we could debate ibrutinib dose, but the reality is ibrutinib um, at least you know, it, it, it exists so we can debate the dose as opposed there was no ibrutinib. Well, I'm not suggesting that pharma is, you know, should be taken on. What I'm suggesting is in the battle over, over payment reform and healthcare financing, pharma would oppose the kinds of objectives that we're framing and that, that that's what I'm saying. And so, uh, no, I'm a, I'm a supporter of the pharmaceutical industry, don't get me wrong. I just would be opposed to their opposition to getting the dose right and to incentivizing prescribers to reduce costs. Dan, you work in a completely, and I know we're getting closer to the finish, so I'll be very respectful of your time, but Dan, you work in a completely different healthcare system, not in the US, but you did, obviously, you're familiar with the US healthcare system, you worked in different countries, I know from your background. In your healthcare system, is there a role for near equivalence, really? Is this really specific for the US because of the dysfunctional healthcare system that we have? Like, I mean, you know, you know what I'm trying to get at? Yeah, so, um, so in our system, I would say that our system is very tied to the, what goes on through the FDA. So they're very, very, relatively conservative, um, even though you know, Israel is considered to be startup nation and lots of creative people. When it comes to healthcare and rules, they're pretty conservative and go by uh, what, what, what comes from the FDA. Uh, my sense of um, the interest that we're getting from our near equivalence paper is that Americans think it's nice, interesting, abiraterone dosing, nice, interesting, but it hasn't really caught on. The same uh, in Israel, which is really relatively not quite as wealthy a country as America, but on the same kind of level. The place where I think there is genuine real interest, and Ian kind of mentioned about this, and we've had a number of emails um, from people in 
low to middle income countries. And we know, as Ian mentioned, that uh, they're using low dose abiraterone based on a near equivalent study in India. We know um, that there are studies going on and they're using low dose checkpoint inhibition. There's a, a bunch of retrospective data coming out now uh, from St. Petersburg in uh, with low dose nivolumab. I think it was 40 milligrams every two weeks they were using and they were getting 80% response rates or so in relapsed refractory uh, Hodgkin's disease. There was a, a real world study just, just came out of Singapore recently. So we know well, Singapore is not such a, uh, a, a poor country, uh, but it all depends on the insurance uh, system at play. Um, so, but our sense is that the places that are really in interested in this out of a sense of um, desperation and need is the kind of lower middle income countries. Um, but, you know, parts of America uh, really are uh, relatively uh, a low, a low income countries. If you, I, I get confused in Chicago, it's the north side or the south side. Uh, <laughs> it depends. Uh, that's now we're getting very, you know, Mark knows in Chicago, north side, south side is very tough. So I worked at, at Emory University in, in Atlanta, and we, I used to work at Grady. Uh, Grady is the downtown city hospital in Atlanta. And that, you know, the population there, relatively similar uh, in terms of uh, disposable income, ability to afford drugs, relative, relatively similar to many uh, uh, lower middle income countries. I, I mean, I, I found the paper fascinating. I think it should be a must read, honestly, for every fellow in training and, and everywhere just to understand this. Okay, I'll, I'll take final comments from each one of you. Um, Ian, um, last comments, anything that I should have asked you, I, I didn't ask you that you would like listeners to, to know or, or mention. Go ahead. No, I think you did a good job and I think we've covered the bases. Uh, uh, it's obviously gonna be a long battle to try to get, improve global access to good quality cancer care, but I, I think we would like to recruit more and more of our colleagues to uh, to join in that goal well i'm I, i'll definitely join whatever i can do mark last comments i guess my last comment is near equivalence trials are self-funding <laughs> because they're self-funding if conducted by the entity that has to fund the cost of the care so whether that be the veterans administration the national health service khalit in israel uh Kaiser, uh, CMS, they are self-funding and they could be designed and operated by any, any payer in that context. And that's a notion we're also trying to push forward. That's great. Last comments, Dan? I, I think I said all I have to say, but really to thank my collaborators. Um, and you know, really, uh, uh, it's an honor to work with people like Mark and Ian. Um, as well as the other collaborators on the paper. It's an honor to have you all on, 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 on the show, really, and, and to talk about this. It's very stimulating. I'm going to be looking forward to more papers coming out from the consortium, from the thing. This is really, this is really great. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Thanks, Chadi. Okay, folks, thank you so much for joining today's podcast, and thank you for listening to Healthcare Unfiltered. This was really excellent. I immensely enjoyed the conversation and the dialogue that I had with Dr. Stanek, Ratain, and Goldstein. I hope you did too. 
I hope you learned from them as much as I learned from them. I'd like to know from you how I'm doing. Please let me know any feedback by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or by sending me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. You can also visit my website at shadinabhan.com and send me a note and please browse various aspects of the website and let me know how things look and any feedback. I always appreciate incorporating your opinions and suggestions. Before I let you go, I need to leave you with a saying from Winston Churchill. You have enemies? Good. That means you've stood up for something, sometime in your life. Until next time, take care.